0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the abysmal response to the pandemic in the U.S., the unavoidable racial overtones inherent in that failed response, the lasting trauma the pandemic has inflicted, and why nothing short of systemic change will suffice. Before we get started, though, another quick reminder. Just want to catch anyone up who, uh, who missed out on the news. We're sort of in a Uh, Break glass in case of emergency financial situation. Things are getting better, but we very recently lost a huge chunk of money. Our Amazon affiliate funding disappeared, and it's like losing 400 members all at once. A financial blow we were not prepared to take. Remarkably, after just a few weeks of explaining the situation, and losing those 400 members, you know, the equivalent of, as I said, we've regained the equivalent of about 300 members. In other words, about 75% of the way back to that sustainability point that we had been at before. So if you can become a member or want to gift a membership to someone to help get us back to sustainability, please do. We also gratefully accept one time donations if that is more your style. We also have a new merch store where you can buy our designs, and we've launched our referromatic campaign that you can use to earn rewards just for sharing the show and helping to grow the audience. Links to all of that, of course, are in the show notes. And now, onto the show, clips today are from the damage report. All In with Chris Hayes, Politics with Amy Walter, The David Pakman Show, an episode of Check Your Blind Spot, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Democracy Now!, The Humanist Report, The United States of Anxiety, and The Majority Report.
1: Got an insult and injury sort of situation here, with the injury being that Mitch McConnell has spent the past year desperately trying to stop you from getting any assistance from the government during the worst domestic crisis of the last century. The insult will be his characterization of the ongoing negotiations in this video clip. If my friends actually oppose PPP funding, vaccine distribution money, or extending some expiring unemployment aid, let's hear why. But if they do not oppose these things, let's get them out the door. When I see that, like I, I just want to be like, I, this is why people don't like politics, and I don't like it anymore when I see that, Brett. That was a little bit disingenuous from the Senate majority leader. It's just so boring. It's so yeah
2: boring. It is so callous and so boring. So here's the conclusion I've come to. Dear Republicans in Georgia, Georgia, which is has a lot of economic woes they're in the throes of. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, your president, wants a COVID aid package with some sort of direct payments to individuals. Everyone, re- Republicans out there, Democrats, whom you, your state has voted for recently and currently, they want some kind of COVID aid. Money, checks to you, dollar bills in the mail for you. The only person who's standing there shaking his fist saying no, we need to send that money to your boss is Mitch McConnell. So the only way to get what Donald Trump wants and what everybody else if you ask them wants is to vote for two Democrats in Senate Mm cuz then you get rid of Mitch McConnell and you can still filibuster whatever you want. But in this situation, you get people out of the way that are standing between you and the money you need to feed your family.
1: Um, But thankfully, we do have some people who are going to communicate about the actual roadblock, which is not the Democrats not wanting the money. Um, It's him, basically just Mitch McConnell at this point, wanting there to be this shield against lawsuits for corporations that puts you into incredibly dangerous situations. Uh, That was explained very well Um, in a much more casual setting yesterday in a live stream by representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as you'll see in this
3: clip. What Mitch McConnell said is that we want to give big corporations total immunity for five years from COVID related lawsuits. Now, if we do that, if we accept that for a one time $1,200 check or a super short expansion of unemployment insurance, the deal is is that you're gonna end up behind because you may get one $1,200 check on one hand, but you may also get a multimillion dollar hospital bill with no recourse and no ability to um, protect yourself from a negligent corporation or employer. And so that's not worth it, right? Your check is not worth your life.
1: Exactly, and and we don't we 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 know about some of these lawsuits, and some lawsuits have already been filed, and this would of course be a retroactive shield that he wants, so it would nullify some of those. But there are so many that we don't even yet know about because a lot of people are still going to be endangered over the next few months to the next year, and others will find out about long-term health problems that they might not yet be fully aware of. Um, of course, Mitch McConnell is like rushing to get out in front of those and. And he might in the end actually succeed, but at least along the way we have some politicians who are trying to do the right thing.
2: Yes, that is a very good way to put it, what AOC did, which is they want to, we're not going to trade. The two options from the Republicans are starving you and killing you, Mm -hmm. that's it. They either want to starve you out and not give you anything. And, or they want to allow your employer to just send you into whatever dangerous situation, and this is the skill of the Republicans: is to remove any any common sense from the equation. Any de- like they're trying to paint Democrats, progressives, any and and most Republicans at this point, because it, there is a bipartisan attempt to actually get you checks, right? They're trying to paint that as, well, they just wanna lock you up and uh, and throw away the key, take away your freedoms. It's like, no, we wanna we wanna we wanna keep you safe and keep food on your table for now. Yeah. Until we get through this. In the meantime, all that they're trying to do on the Republican side is is give your boss money and and squeeze you to, to die. That's it.
4: As the coronavirus continues to devastate this country, I am just finding it hard to hold my rage and my anguish together. We are watching a lack of action by the federal leadership of this country that feels almost criminal. It is depraved indifference at a level I cannot quite articulate. Do you remember where you were on 9-11? I do. I think we all do. Well, I would say take a moment now to commit to memory where you are at this moment. We lost more Americans today than we lost in 9-11, an event that transformed our country and our government and the world. Today was just a Wednesday. We are now at a point where the nation's COVID response has descended into chaos. Just chaos, catastrophe, and calamity. And everyone is mad at everyone else. People are mad at each other. People are texting each other about the jerk at the store who wasn't wearing the mask properly and the person on Instagram. with a big party and big group on Thanksgiving. Or the people mobilizing in this town or that to protest the restrictions meant to save lives. And the hypocritical local leaders. And the governors who won't act who are closing schools and playgrounds, but not bars and gyms. All the while, a record number of people in the U.S. remain hospitalized with COVID. More than 3,000 deaths were recorded today for the first time ever. That's a record here and a record for the world. We have, without question, the worst response of any rich country in the world, and you can really make the case it is just the worst in the world, period. There are many points of failure, but do not lose sight of the fact that it starts from the top and it has from the beginning. There is no country on Earth that has successfully suppressed the coronavirus in a distributed privatized, federalized way. Nowhere on earth where the government just told localities and individuals to make choices for themselves. That didn't work for anyone. In fact, it's the opposite that's been successful. Look at Australia. Yes, it doesn't share a land border with another country. Yes, they have a lot going for them. And they also adopted really strict measures. Australia even stopped people traveling between provinces completely. Imagine if you couldn't travel between states here. You know, a few times, teenagers in Australia broke quarantine and traveled between provinces, and it was, no joke, it was national news there. The country undertook a fully nationalized effort to suppress the virus. And it was strict, and it was hard, and you know what? It worked. They have almost no cases, and this is what it looks like in Australia now. Doesn't that look nice? People greeting each other at the end of the travel ban, which just was announced. They're having outdoor concerts. People are eating in Sydney and Melbourne. This is what success looks like. If the U.S. had Australia's per capita death rate, more than 270,000 Americans would be alive today. More than 90% of all the Americans who have died of COVID would still be here. Okay, you say, Australia is, is a weird case. It's, it's an island. It's got a relatively small population. It's a part of the world that dealt with SARS and had some practice. Let's look at Germany. Germany had one of the best performers performances in the EU. And then because the virus is implacable, as we know, doesn't stop, doesn't go away. The numbers started spiking again in the fall. And so like other EU countries, they had to take fairly drastic measures to shut back down to suppress the virus and get it under control. Now, Germany is actually quite a federalized system. There is a lot of regional autonomy in their government. But this was a national effort led by a national leader who spoke to her nation like a grown up. Just today, Chancellor Angela Merkel was explaining why the country's traditional Christmas markets couldn't stay open, saying that the current death rate in Germany is just too high.
3: You
4: hear what she said? She said, I am really sorry from the bottom of my heart. But if the price we pay is 590 deaths a day, and that is unacceptable, in my view, and they applauded. 590 deaths a day, which is what Merkel will not abide in Germany, is the equivalent population wise to 2300 people a day here, less than the number of people dying here every day. Now, Donald Trump has never come out surrounded by members of his party and given a passionate public speech in which he says, from the bottom of my heart to Americans, 2300 Americans dying a day is a completely fine price to pay. It's fine if you all die at that number and get applause from the people that support him. But just because he hasn't given that speech doesn't mean that isn't the policy. That is the policy. The policy is you guys all figure it out. Everyone is left on their own with no White House leadership on anything, not public health policy and not a relief deal to offset the worst economic effects of the pandemic. And it is a mess.
5: It's pretty clear that the structural inequities that have been part of the US economy for some time now have always been there. were're just really laid bare and in this uh, COVID era and seem to be getting even worse. Where do you
6: see things?
7: Well, I see the turn in the virus in part influenced by a sense that it had racially disparate effects that black workers were dying at far higher rates than other workers somehow or another i believe gave a sense that this was not as critical as everybody thought it would be and that's part of what i believe turned this into a partisan issue as opposed to understanding it As this national crisis, since we're about to lose more people from this virus than our casualties during World War II. And I am fearful because what should have been unifying, this should have been like all the science fiction movies that everybody grew up on where the aliens come to Earth and try and kill us. And the world, you know, comes together and beats the aliens. Well, the virus is the alien. And, and so I worry because this has become partisan and because the pain is not equally felt in all communities, there will be this tendency to accept the pain and the suffering and the loss and attempts to solve the problem become a partisan issue and make it difficult to pull together Do the right thing on the virus so we can do the right thing on the economy. And part of doing the right thing on the economy is making sure that we are unified, that we see this as this outside force that has attacked our economy. And that we understand if households can't go to grocery stores, if people aren't paying rent, this affects the whole economy. And so supporting people becomes important for the economy. Instead, in this partisan world, it's become the typical whether people are worthy. And our sliding scale on worthy has become disturbing. It used to be, well, you know, there's the um, deserving poor. Now it's the deserving workers. We accept poor workers, we accept that. now. Now we're into, you have to be a deserving worker.
0: If you imagine our democracy as a dashboard, you'll see that the lights are flashing, alarms are blaring, warning us that it is time to check our systems. And that's why the new podcast from The Nation magazine is called System Check. System Check is a weekly show where host Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren ask what it would be like to break free from the oppressive and malfunctioning political systems that are holding us down. And it's unapologetically rooted in progressive black culture and politics, from the movement for black lives to fighting for climate justice, the unjust immigration regime, to the unfinished voting rights struggle. Dorian and Melissa want to know how you are living in, working around, smashing through, or recreating the systems that shape your life. And now, you know, System Check has just launched, but as their season continues to roll out, they have been as timely as ever. Recent episodes discuss why the pandemic didn't have to be this bad, and why this should motivate us to strengthen our healthcare system in a similar way that we were motivated to spend trillions of dollars in the wake of 9-11 to make sure that didn't happen again. I know you'll enjoy System Check too, so don't wait. To subscribe to System Check on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. New episodes every Friday.
8: It's a truly a tragedy what's going on in this country in general. But I'm talking right now about coronavirus. I get that. We're a huge country. Geographically, we have 330 million people. I get that. But we're some of the worst of the worst in the world. And we are now having a 9/11's worth of deaths on one day regularly. And the numbers are potentially going to get much worse before they get any better. Now, I know many people on the right, including Donald Trump, like to say, well, everyone is seeing the same thing. That could not be further from the truth. And I want to examine that with you today because we really need to understand just how terribly we are doing. The claim is everyone's seeing the same thing. Cases are spiking here. Cases are spiking there. Italy's, you know, Sweden, whatever. Uh, that's mostly based on this spike in mid October that we started seeing just like many other European countries. But there are two really important differences to understand here. The first is that when the US started seeing its October spike, that was already our third spike because we had spike number one in April and spike number two in July. So middle of October, we're on spike number three. That's a key difference because in Italy, for example, their mid October spike was only their second spike. In other words, Italy successfully suppressed the virus throughout May, June, July, August, September, early October. So when we were entering spike three and they were also spiking, they were only on their second spike. So that's a huge difference. And that applies to just about all of these European countries that did not have the second spike we had. Just as importantly, these European countries that started getting a spike when we did in mid-October, most of them have already suppressed the spike. And they've seen a decline from the highs of about 50% of new cases per day. So as an example, we look at Spain and you see that, yes, Spain started having spike number two at the same time that we started having spike number three, but their trend line for the seven day case average is already down by half from where it peaked. If you look at another example, like France, you also see that while they spiked in mid October, like we did, their cases are already way down. But when you look at the United States, we have this spike that started at the same time, but we are reaching new records just about every day. This has been one of the biggest failures of any presidential administration ever. It's globally shameful, but it is a tragedy in terms of its uh, its toll on human life and suffering. And it's going to take time to fix this now. There's no way around it. And and we know that on January 21st every coronavirus death will be blamed on Joe Biden by these Republicans. All I care is that we fix it if now they want to start wearing masks and social distancing because Biden's president, then do it in order to show I don't know what I don't think that that's going to be their reaction. And of course, it's too late for the 300000 people that died already. It's too late for the many that recovered from serious cases of the virus and still have symptoms and unknown long term effects that we don't yet understand but this is a cautionary tale about what not to do. This is not about taking, you know, it's so depressing. Uh, uh, Don jr. Early in this entire fiasco said, Oh, Democrats want people to die to make Trump look bad. (laughs) No, I have not. I've not found a single person on the left or a Democrat who wants people to die. Uh, What we do want is that those responsible for the failed leadership be held accountable. In a sense, Trump was because he lost the election. But this is really a cautionary tale about what not to do. And part of what not to do is don't elect a buffoonish incompetent clown to be president of the United States.
2: Once again, to play America's favorite political game show, Check Your Blind Spot!
0: That's right, it's Check Your Blind Spot brought to you and powered by our sponsor, the Ground News app, the first ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. The Ground News app features the Blind Spot, which highlights news stories that just aren't being covered by one end of the political spectrum or the other, so I use the Blind Spot to quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is our reigning champion, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show.
5: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: I am going to be telling you about news stories, and you're going to tell me which side of the political spectrum is blind to them. Are you ready? Yes. Excellent. Let's get ready for round one. In whose political blind spot is this story? Tucker Carlson warns that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could win the presidency in 2024 if the wealth gap keeps expanding and goes on to say that the ruling class is giving capitalism a bad name and elites are participating in a closed game for their own benefit. So,
5: (laughs) Including Tucker Carlson.
0: (laughs) So Tucker's clearly been reading from Bernie Sanders' crib notes. Right. Who's paying attention to this?
5: That's, hmm. I'm gonna guess that it's in the left blind spot, but there's some fuzzy area there. Okay.
0: Yeah, so... We, I think we were witnessing the beginning of something because this reminds me of another recent headline from Marco Rubio saying the GOP must rebrand as the party of multi ethnic, multi rational working class voters.
5: Oh, good lord. Good luck with that.
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, basically they see an opening. Right. The Democrats are not covering their yeah, working class yeah. wing. Mm-hmm. And, the Republicans, in fear of losing any capacity to win an election, are going
5: for it. If if that happens, oh my dear lord! If the Republicans can fill this the spot that we've been begging Democrats to fill for years, I will cry
0: forever. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the Democrats would really have to be caught sleeping to allow that to happen. And uh-huh. I mean, what are the, what are the chances?
5: Mm, yeah. What is
0: <laughs> All right, ni- nice work. Uh, let's hear round two. In whose political blind spot is this story? a list of Chinese Communist Party members has been revealed showing that they have been working around the world in various corporations and governments hmm. So just quick uh, overview. amid simmering tensions between Australia and China, The media in Melbourne on Monday reported a major data leak containing official records like party position, birthdate, national ID number, and ethnicity of nearly 2 million alleged members of the Communist Party of China living and working across the world. The data leak obtained by The Australian newspaper, has revealed how the alleged CPC members are employed with some of the world's biggest corporations in the areas of defense, banks, and pharmaceutical giants manufacturing coronavirus vaccines. Who is not aware of this?
5: Mm, I'm going to go and say it's in the left spine spot.
6: Correct.
5: Mm, mm-hmm. No. So, well, we could get into a whole discussion. I'm not sure what that means exactly, just because they're members of the party. I'll tell you, that was exactly where
0: I was headed. (laughs) So, to be clear, there is no evidence so far of espionage or wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. It's just a list of names and details. But the problem, according to one article, says, quote, CPC members must swear an oath of loyalty and secrecy to the party, including a vow to, quote, never betray the party, unquote. Mm -hmm. And so, as you correctly pointed out, the right is talking about this, the left not so much. So a former conservative party leader in the UK, Ian Duncan Smith, said CPC members must not be allowed to work in British consulates. Oh, geez. And says, quote, the government must now move to expel and remove any members of the Communist Party from our consuls throughout China," Duncan Smith wrote in a commentary in the Mail on Sunday. Continuing, they can either serve the UK or the Chinese Communist Party; they cannot do both. Mm. And and so I mean that that's a government job at, right. at a consul. The corporations,
5: yeah, that's a whole. Different. It's a
0: whole trickier thing, but it is causing an uproar.
5: Hmm. Interesting. Could do a whole episode on that.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Now, after two successful rounds, let's see if you can go three for three. In whose political blind spot is this story? On Fox News, Stephen Miller says an alternate set of electors will certify Trump as the winner.
5: <laughs> well, I heard about this story because it was trending on Twitter. So... It can't be too far in one camp or the other, I don't think. Um, But I'm going to say it's in the right blind spot just because I've heard of it.
0: (laughs) That is correct. And and to be honest... I'm
5: surprised. That surprises me.
0: (laughs) This one is a bit of a puzzle for me. There there is a dribble of coverage over on the right. Mm -hmm. Not much. There is a flood of it on the
5: left. Is it because they just know that this isn't...
0: (laughs) I genuinely don't know. I was going to ask you that like this one's a puzzle. I don't know yeah. why the right isn't
5: Well, I'd seen a few things where people were, you know, trying to make it sound like because some electors in some states voted for Trump that he that people were turning and that's not the case and it depends on a whole other slew of things. So, I don't know. I think they're distracted by other stuff. <laughs> Other fake stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, Miller was pressed on Fox News by Brian Kilmeade about the Trump campaign's repeated failures to prove election fraud in court, asking, quote, your legal team in almost every state 50 times lost, <laughs> some with Trump judges. So do you have the worst legal team?
5: <laughs> yes. The answer is Yes. <laughs>
0: Or are you just too late, and this case should have been brought before the election? And Miller's response was that the judges were caving to the corrupt corporate media, pressuring them.
5: Right. Ooh! Ah! Oh, my
4: God.
0: So once again, three for three, winner and still champion, Amanda from Boston, thank you for playing. Thank you. That wraps it up for today. It's important to mention that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone and definitely not that of the staunchly unopinionated ground news. If you'd like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features, and let them know we sent you, go to ground.news slash best. As always, whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to...
6: Check check your blinds!
9: Every day, it gets harder and harder to articulate just how shocking and devastating and unbearable the situation is and how sick and depraved and sadistic our leaders are. At some point, you just run out of words. If, when this whole thing started, you'd invested in Purell, Lysol, and Thesaurus.com, you would have made a fortune. king's ransom, a tidy nest egg, racks on racks. The point is, we're in the midst of a national calamity unlike anything most of us have seen in our lifetimes. It's an ongoing emergency with over 200,000 new cases every day and 100,000 Americans in the hospital as we speak. Republicans spent over $7 million in two and a half years investigating four American deaths in Benghazi in order to, by their own admission, drag down Hillary Clinton's poll numbers. But when you bring up COVID, they act like it's a new TikTok trend they've never heard of before. Is that the one where you eat cereal out of someone else's mouth? And as grotesque and sociopathic as the indifference and incompetence from the Trump administration and Republican Party have been, there's also plenty of blame to go around, from confusing decisions by local officials to close playgrounds but keep gyms and bars open, to hypocrites like the mayor of Austin who told people to stay home while he was on vacation in Cabo. I mean, I'm sure it's a wonderful place, but just being in Cabo sounds like an admission of guilt. If someone started a sentence, let me explain, I was in Cabo, you would just say, shut up. Unless, of course, you were in Cancun, in which case, you know, you'd have to hear them out. The response to the coronavirus has been a total failure of American governance from the top down, and leadership is desperately needed. The president and his aides could be on TV every single day, asking people to stay home for their own sake and for the health of their friends, family, and fellow Americans. They could be leading the charge to get direct payments to Americans and small businesses to help them through the crisis. Instead, Mitch McConnell has been holding up an aid package in order to get a liability shield for corporations that put workers in harm's way, while the White House proposed lowering the federal unemployment benefit, a situation that has clearly infuriated Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders.
7: Unemployment high. We have a record level of hunger in America. Millions of people are facing evictions. This is an emergency. Congress has got to respond aggressively to help working families. You know, Stephanie, I always get a kick. Here in Washington, when we go to war, there's endless amounts of money. Tax breaks for billionaires, endless amounts of money. Corporate welfare, endless amounts of money. When children are going hungry in America today, suddenly we don't have enough money. That's crap, that's wrong.
9: Can Bernie be the new host of Jeopardy? That would be fantastic. What is Los Angeles?
7: That's crap, that's
10: wrong.
9: Bernie's right, and there's no better way to say it. This situation should be just as outrageous to you as seeing a BMW parked in a fire lane or getting skipped in line at the deli. And you do not want to skip Bernie at the deli. Whoa, 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 excuse me. I have number seven. I've been waiting here impatiently for 20 minutes, and you just serve him because he walks up to the counter like he owns the place. That's wrong. That's crap. Now, I got to go. I got tickets to Jersey Boys. Sanders and many other progressives like Congresswoman Katie Porter want direct payments to Americans, and in an interview last week, Porter took issue with the fact that such payments are often referred to as stimulus.
6: One of the things that's making me really frustrated right now is when I hear people talk about this as stimulus. Let's be clear, it is not stimulus money to give people money so they can feed themselves, so that they can keep heat on in the winter, so that they can avoid eviction. That's not stimulus. That is basic needs that we're talking about meeting. And you're absolutely right that it's not enough To just do some unemployment, it's not enough to do more with food assistance. People need that direct assistance.
9: And she's right, too. All that was missing was a that's crap or, you know, a few other swears. Next time, she should feel free to say, one of the many things that makes me really upset at these (laughs) jabronis is when I hear their bitch mouths talk about a stimulus. It's not stimulus. It's money for people to eat and pay for housing and utilities, things Mitch McConnell doesn't have to worry about because, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, he has a net worth of over $34 million, money I assume he made doing narration for Kentucky Ghost Stories. Go yeah, around, right, children, for the tale of a coal zombie. Porter's right that we shouldn't call this stimulus. It's not about stimulating the economy. It's about keeping people alive. If you see someone on the side of the road next to a car wreck, you don't pull over and say, oh, so you want me to call AAA? What's next, a tourniquet for your leg? Everybody wants a handout. The richest country on Earth should have a political system that sees the dire situation we're in. 3,000 dead in a day, 100,000 hospitalized, millions facing eviction, unemployment, and hunger, and rushes to do something about it. Instead, here's what the leader of the White House Coronavirus Task Force was talking about yesterday as the U.S. set a new daily record for coronavirus deaths.
7: -"Space itself represents a war-fighting domain, and we will be prepared to defend our nation and defend our freedom in space."
9: -"I mean, sure, why not? After all, we're at a place now where going to space and going to Applebee's are equally dangerous." But maybe that's their COVID plan, quarantine everyone in space. We'll be launching people into orbit to keep the coronavirus from spreading. Rudy, please keep your helmet on. When I cough in the helmet, the spit comes right back at me. Oh, no, my teeth are floating away again. Although, to be honest, I wish Trump had been talking about space and maybe, you know, going there. Instead, he spent his entire day as thousands of Americans were dying alone in overwhelmed hospitals, scream-tweeting unhinged nonsense about the election he lost, trying to get the result overturned and, of course, watching Fox News. This is what Trump and the Republican Party obsessively focused on, as thousands of Americans die every day from a pandemic they clearly don't care about. As I said before, at some point, you just run out of words. All you can really say is... That's crap, that's wrong.
5: First time in the pandemic's history. Um, The state prison system is battling COVID-19 in all of the state's prisons, all 34. Um, Can you talk about what is happening and what people are describing as the chaos inside San Quentin, what needs to be done?
11: Yes, and and good to see you again, Amy. The outbreak throughout the 34 prisons is um, surging in a way that uh, shows that overcrowded, unventilated prisons throughout the state are not safe to protect people from COVID-19, something that that public health officials have been saying for the past nine months. The public health officials have called for San Quentin itself to be depopulated to 50%. Uh, and throughout the state, there are calls for, for each of our um, massively overcrowded prisons to be decarcerated in the same manner throughout the state there are n- there's no capacity to physically distance within our prisons there are no proper hygiene and, and personal protection equipment that is passed out and the buildings themselves are poorly ventilated as you heard from Juan. Um, last October the there was a first court first District Court of appeals ruling which um ruled that San Quentin should reduce its population to 1,775 people either by transfers or releases and gave the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation the option to decide which to, to do. They're choosing transfers of over 300 of their most elderly, medically vulnerable people out of the prison throughout the state, even though cases are surging throughout the state prison system. And what has been the response of state officials to uh, the uh, possible releases, either of the uh, most elderly or vulnerable patients, or of, of those who uh, have been convicted of uh, uh, nonviolent crimes? You know, we haven't heard from Governor Newsom on this in months. Um, as your reporting detailed, there was a hundred and thirty percent surge in cases just last week within our state prison system. There's close to 10,000 active confirmed cases throughout the state right now within our 34 prisons. And the governor is radio silent. So we don't know what their response will be. We can see from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, they want to keep everyone in. They want to transfer the most medically vulnerable to other dangerous uh, living conditions, as opposed to just releasing the 300 people throughout the state to their homes and to transitional housing. And what about the issue of vaccinations? Uh, we're we're not, we're not hearing from any uh, uh, major public officials of prioritizing uh, inmates uh, in the prison systems across the country. And could you talk about your sense of how the vaccinations should be handled, and also what the response of inmates would be to the vaccinations? Yeah, the, you know that um, we. California has a very aging prison population, and so you see elderly people throughout our state prisons who are are living in these highly dense, congregate settings. Um, we think the virus, the, we think the the vaccine should be available to them as soon as possible. At the same time, the conditions, the public health conditions that make prison living so dangerous, existed way before coronavirus came onto the scene this year. Uh, Studies show that that being in prison itself will age you um, 10 to 15 years older than, than people who are not incarcerated. So we don't see the vaccines as a substitute for releases by any stretch of the imagination, but it should be available as soon as possible to keep people safe.
12: So last week on the program, we talked about a gut-wrenching story from South Dakota where a nurse who is caring for COVID-19 patients describes how they are in denial of the virus as they literally die from it because they believe Donald Trump's lies. They believe that this is a hoax and that what they're experiencing, the the illness that they feel, it's not from the virus. It's from something else. Now, another story uh, has emerged featuring another nurse who's working on the front lines, caring for COVID-19 patients. And what she says is genuinely just heartbreaking. And I wanted to share her story because I think that these these types of uh, stories from nurses are really important. So she writes I am tired I've spent the last 8 months caring for covid patients I've missed my family and friends I've missed birthdays and my own wedding anniversary I've coded nurses and doctors who worked in the same hospital as I when they contracted coronavirus I kept going. I believed my country needed my skills to save American lives, so I dropped everything and flew to New York. I've worked in South Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Chester, Pennsylvania, and now I'm back in Texas. We were making gains. The numbers were dropping. The curve was flattening. I was able to leave the COVID ICU. I was assigned to a non-COVID floor. I was finally able to go home. My toddler has stopped crying every time I leave the room because she was scared I wasn't coming back. It's heartbreaking to watch a happy child get sad because she thinks her mama is leaving again. Children don't understand their parents being gone for months at a time. We were finally settling in and getting back out to the new normal. But then, Donald Trump and his followers started this anti-mask bullshit. Now our numbers are climbing again. Actually, they are worse in my hospital than the first wave. I'm going back to the COVID unit. I'm going back to a small, cold, one-bedroom apartment and leaving my home. I'm going back to an uncertain future. I'm going back, except now I'm losing hope. The worst part of it all is my little one. She is so happy that her mama is home. Now I have to leave again. I dread the holidays. Not one of these selfish anti-maskers is going to care that I'll spend my holidays alone so they can be assholes and not wear masks. They don't have to see my child's tears. They wouldn't care anyway. She won't get to eat my sweet potato pie on Friendship and Fellowship Day. This will be the first year that she's excited about our tree and the gifts under it. I'm going to miss it all. This is what I have to give up so these horribly selfish people can go to their grandma's house and infect her with COVID. Then they'll bring her to my hospital. They're not kind. They are entitled assholes who think someone else got grandma sick. They're the ones that will follow you to another patient's room to tell you their grandmother is more important than the patient you're going to see. They're the ones that will take out their air vote to blame China for the China virus. They're the ones that call me girl. They tell me how admirable it is that I speak good English and manage to overcome to get a college degree. They are racist covidiots and they refuse to acknowledge the harm they cause. I deserve a break. I deserve to watch my baby open her gifts on Christmas. I deserve to work without fear that today might be the day i contract coronavirus i am fucking tired now hearing this story it like the last story it brought tears to my eyes because you know in the last story you know the the south dakota nurse talked about how painful it is to see you know uh patients who she cares for in denial but this story it really it gives you the perspective of a nurse and this just reinforces The reality that when this is all said and done, these nurses are going to have PTSD. They're going to have decades of trauma from this experience. They're putting everything on the line, sacrificing their own lives to care for people in a country that don't seem to take the virus seriously.
10: I am personally very ready to take the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm not a health worker, and I'm not particularly at risk personally, so I will have to wait some time for it, which is right and just. But when it is my turn, trust that I will be getting the shot, which is a notable fact only because I am Black. And while there are lots and lots of types of people who are uneasy about the vaccine, survey data does suggest that Black Americans— are uniquely worried about it, which is a problem because we are also uniquely likely to both catch the virus and get seriously ill from it. So a lot of people are talking about this dynamic, and I want to start this week's show by bringing you all into a conversation that I have been having with our associate producer, Carolyn Adams, about a viral Twitter thread she saw. Take a listen.
5: Hey, Carolyn. Hey, Kai.
10: So... This Twitter thread, you you showed me a Twitter thread. What what is this you're trying to get me to see?
5: So I found this thread on Twitter last week by Dr. Brittany James. She's a family practitioner in the South Side of Chicago and the co-founder of the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine. And she was addressing apprehension in the black community. Uh, This idea that a lot of us are skeptical about taking the vaccine for pretty valid reasons. A lot of us meaning, including you. I would say it's fair, To include me, Uh, I certainly am open to taking the vaccine. I'm not opposed to it. Would I be the first person in line? Probably not. But I also, like she said, understand where people are coming from.
10: And she has this line in that Twitter thread that really hit me too. She says, and let me quote this, I'm a physician myself, and even I don't trust y'all. Being a doctor has made me less trusting of the medical institution as a whole, not more. And there is just so much embedded in that sentence, right? And and of course, it makes me think about these surveys that we've seen showing how Americans think about COVID and the vaccine. And in particular, there's the one from the Pew Center, and we can put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But what jumped out at me is that 71% of Black people said they know somebody who was either hospitalized or killed by COVID. 71%. And then on the questions that were sort of meant to see how seriously people are taking the pandemic, Black people were always in the lead on stuff like wearing the masks or accepting restrictions on our behavior, right? And yet, at the same time, we were far and away the most likely to voice reluctance about taking the vaccine. So we take this thing more seriously than everyone else because we have plenty of lived experience with how dangerous it can be. And yet we're the least likely to trust the vaccine. Now, there are tons of reasons for that, but Dr. James's Twitter thread certainly seems to have resonated with a lot of people. So, Carolyn, you suggested we call Dr. James and get her to explain where she was coming from with this thread.
13: It's so interesting that that tweet went viral because I consider myself rage tweeting, uh, especially on matters of race, for better or for worse by Twitter, uh, and just you know, writing for me has, has been such an outlet for emotion and and frustration. So, what's probably hard for people to understand is if you're not a healthcare worker to understand what's happening on the ground for us we feel like we're in a battle the depth of suffering that we're around is is so profound and um and then to end your day and turn to the news and people are debating about i don't even want to wear a mask and On the one hand, it's great to know this vaccine is here. It gives us, you know, the healthcare front lines, a renewed sense of hope. But then for me, it's this other pit in my stomach, knowing that history has told us and even recent history, the way this pandemic has played out for black and brown people, it's already predicted, you know, that this rollout is not going to be equitable. And so the tweet was really taking whatever ounce of power and platform I can have to say, like, you know, let's do something about this.
10: I keep reading these surveys, you know, most recently this Pew survey that confirms what you're saying, that there's this this huge reluctance amongst Black people relative to everybody else. Um, And I keep thinking about previous epidemics, about HIV and rolling out of testing and all of it, and the times we have been reluctant to embrace... Healthcare.
13: Yes. My message is that the vaccine is safe and I want people to know that. And I probably said that three or four times yesterday at my clinic too. My clinic is all black patients and it's already coming up. So they say, are you going to take it? You know, the way they ask me like, what do you think about this doc? Like I have this relationship with my patients and this is something, a perk of being, uh, you know, a black doctor. I said, you know, (laughs) I read the study and I'm able to say I'm going to do it, but I'm also saying, I I understand why you're hesitating and because I have seen it on uh, the racism of medicine from every angle imaginable as a black woman or as a physician, as a patient myself. Things that I will never forget, names I was called by patients, things I overheard um, about black patients or brown patients, things I've lived through.
10: When did that happen for you? Was it from the beginning? Were you from medical school being like, oh, yeah, this is this. I don't trust the system. Or was there a moment where you got to where you were like, oh, no, I can't trust this thing.
13: They were clues from jump. You know, I want to be a medical profession because I thought doctors were superhuman. They're they're heroes. They can do no wrong. They fix people like you're saving lives. It's very romanticized. Right. So I, you know. I saw Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy was big when I was a pre-med, like <laughs> old school, you know, like, you know, it's been on. I remember seeing Bailey, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and what Shonda Rhimes created for me as a, that was my role model. You know what I mean? Like to me, when mm-hmm. I think about that now, that was like confirmation to me, a fictional African-American doctor that maybe I could do this because I just never seen it. Thinking about applying to med school, I was like, what? 18, you're, you're kid. Hmm. You don't know what you're doing. You know what I mean? You don't know what you're signing up for. So I, you know, applying, you know, it would be another, what, 11, 12 years until I was. I'm a different person, but you know it's still a love hate (laughs) relationship because uh, you know I associate that time with a lot of trauma. Walking down the hall uh, on the first day of med school, and and seeing just the faces of all the presidents and all the the classes of doctors, it's this rite of passage, this pathway that we all have to walk, is lined by white men who look nothing like me, and you know you just you don't feel like you belong. And when they started teaching about diseases that disproportionately hurt black people. Instead of saying black people have higher rates of diabetes because they're more likely to live in food deserts, they're more likely to have barriers to employment that make it harder for them to maintain jobs and have a stable income. It's just taught as being black is a risk factor for diabetes. It's subtle, but it's different because the way that we're taught was that the black body itself is inherently diseased.
10: And then we carry that as black people, and then I carry that I, you know this was the same thing again with h i v and so many other things and then then you walk around being like, "Oh." I'm uniquely prone to disease.
13: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so I teach on anti-racism in, in medicine, and there was a long legacy of this that dates back to slavery, about the ways that black and brown bodies were made into a pathology and tested on and dehumanized. And so what we were taught at med school was not somehow divorced from that, but very much in the same tradition.
5: With all of these disparities and problems that seem kind of baked in, Do you think that the system can be changed?
13: There is a huge opportunity for change But it's not enough for a single Healthcare provider to say I'm not going to be racist anymore I'm going to treat all of my patients equally Okay well I'm glad I'm glad to hear that but I think the thing That is so important for people to understand And think about is that individual Change is uh, necessary But not sufficient to lift People out of oppression you have to Look at the policies and the structures Of the bigger institutions That are creating and manufacturing the inequity white physicians and white healthcare leaders and white administrators they're the ones with the checkbooks they're the ones making the actual decisions when white people's interests and black and brown interests converge you know things are great but when black and brown people who equally they took an oath to protect is an afterthought you know yeah that does something to you such a mix of feelings. Pride to be to be a part of the healthcare community that, that has the capability for great good and great innovation quickly, but immense shame and uh, detachment to also know that that is a power that is welded selectively and not to benefit the people who need it most.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Damage Report, explaining Mitch McConnell's duplicity. All in with Chris Hayes expressed outrage over America's depraved COVID indifference. Politics with Amy Walter discussed how we've regressed from being only willing to help the deserving poor to now only being willing to help the deserving workers. The David Packman Show explained how the different waves of infection spikes clearly demonstrates how much worse the U.S. has fared. We heard an episode of Check Your Blind Spot. Late Night with Seth Meyers broke down how it's hard to find the words to describe how terrible Trump's response to the virus has been. Democracy Now! looked at the situation inside California prisons fighting the pandemic. The Humanist Report, focused on the trauma being experienced by healthcare workers and the United States of Anxiety, looked at the legitimate suspicion Black people have of our entire healthcare system. That's what everyone heard, but then members also got a bonus clip from the Majority Report, a fascinating look at lessons learned from the Ebola outbreak in Africa and what that can teach us about the deeply ingrained racism at play in how we're responding to the pandemic. For non-members, that bonus clip is linked in the show notes and is part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find it if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you more Specifically, we're going to be hearing from Linda in a follow up to a previous voicemail she left. She had previously responded to a a a clip featuring Rutger Bregman, uh, class consciousness, colonialist mindsets,
6: and a little bit of Marxism. It's Linda from Illinois. Thank you so much for your very thoughtful and thought-provoking analysis of my voicemail comments. I appreciate it very much. I wanted to follow up. I think that it is very important not to conflate right-wing populist leaders with communist populist leaders. Right-wing leaders are representing the ruling elite and manipulating the population to follow them using the dictator's handbook of lies to continue the oppression of the masses. Communist populist leaders, on the other hand, are at the helm of a groundswell of working-class who desire to be liberated from the oppressive rule of the elite ruling class. They desire to have a socialist economy that is owned and operated by the majority of the population, and the bounty of that economy is shared fairly. The decision-making would be democratic and all forms of social oppression would ultimately be eliminated. Socialism and its ultimate end, communism, is truly democratic. The words have been demonized because they equal an end game that the elites and their hangers-on despise.
0: Thanks to all of those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofaleft.com. So we just heard as I said, a follow-up from Linda. She teed me up so nicely. I just wanted to take the opportunity to, to make this one incredibly important point. I think I made it recently, but a realization I had is that I should repeat myself more often. It's, it's like one of the classic traditional go-to strategies for communication is to say the same thing over and over again. So if I repeated myself That's a good thing. (laughs) So the point is that economic systems are not political systems, and political systems are not economic systems. If you learn one thing, have it be that sentence. So especially here in the U.S., thanks to the Cold War, we have been propagandized into thinking that capitalism is practically by definition part of democracy, as if you couldn't have one without the other, but that idea falls apart as soon as you think about it for more than a couple of seconds. Just think, could you have a dictator who allows capitalism to continue under their rule? Yes. Okay, therefore, capitalism and democracy are entirely separate ideas, not inextricably linked in any way. So, you know, we got tricked into thinking that capitalism was equal to democracy and that both are equal to Whatever your vision of freedom is, because we felt like we needed to define ourselves in overtly simplistic terms to differentiate ourselves from the Soviet Union during the Cold War and also to demonize them as our enemy. So anything we did was good and anything they did was bad. So we said that we love freedom. And the Soviets are against it because they're terrible. And the way that you can tell is that we have capitalism and they have socialism. And what's more, socialism is authoritarian because just look how little freedom they have. So those two things are as inextricably linked as capitalism is with democracy. It's all nonsense, but that's what we were all told. So you you can see how we sort of seamlessly... Blended those ideas and and made them sound like they're all the same, but you know it took three seconds to establish that economics and politics are not the same, and this is what Linda was getting at. And so I just wanted to put a slightly finer point on it. You should think of these things not not just as a you know left wing populist versus right wing populist, but understand that that's a completely different axis on a graph from economics, that left-wing politics and right-wing politics are a different axis from socialism versus capitalism or laissez-faire economics. So on the far left, you know, you might have something like Occupy Wall Street. Uh, What they would always do is insist that they had no leaders and that everyone's voice carried equal weight. On the far right, you always end up with totalitarianism. You know, you end up with one leader who controls everything. Just if you go far enough in that direction, I mean. And you can think of this as horizontal organization with no hierarchy at all and vertical organization with one person at the top and a long hierarchy flowing down from there. And those are just by definition left wing, is more democratic, more horizontal, right wing is more vertical. That's not debatable, which is why it's so profoundly absurd when people try to make arguments like Hitler had universal health care, therefore, he was a left winger, you know, something like that. Like It makes no sense because economic systems or policies are not the same as a political system. So just like a dictator could decide to implement laissez-faire capitalism, they could also decide to implement an extreme form of communism in which the state owns all the property and businesses, or they could choose anything in between those. And similarly, a horizontally organized community could collectively decide to adopt either of those extremes or anything in between as well. This is why it's so maddening. When people assume that any talk of socialism, especially democratic socialism, as is the primary focus of conversation in the U.S. today, that they say that that will lead to some sort of dictatorship and political dissidents will be lined up and shot. And I'm not exaggerating, by the way, that is exactly what super mainstream commentator Chris Matthews said on MSNBC just a few months ago when talking about why he was afraid of Bernie Sanders winning the primaries. So the fact is you can have socialist programs like Social Security and Medicare, you can encourage employee ownership of businesses, making them cooperatives, and you can even implement major regulations on the economy that dramatically changes the rules on how businesses operate. And none of that has anything to do with turning into an authoritarian-style government. And the real tip-off to this is that if we're talking about Bernie Sanders-style politics, it's right there in the name democratic socialism that's not just a different kind of socialism that's on some slightly different point on the economic spectrum but still somehow runs the risk of dissidents being lined up and shot that's authoritarian by definition whether it be authoritarian socialism or authoritarian fascism if you're lining up dissidents and shooting them that is authoritarian When people like Bernie Sanders are calling for democratic socialism, that's referring to both the political and economic axes. Democratic, meaning that it is run through the popular will of the people democratically, just like our country is already supposed to be. So we shouldn't be confused or put out by that idea at all and socialist in reference to all the kinds of programs and policies that are designed to help everyone in the country set a higher floor of well-being that no one should be allowed to drop below. The politics is democratic, the economics is socialist, those two things are different axes and don't relate to one another except that you can define what you are asking for in the name of the term you are using as Bernie Sanders and his supporters do, with the term democratic socialism. There should be no fear of authoritarianism with that. But just a side note as I wrap up, I was just thinking the other day about how thoroughly demonized the term welfare is in the U.S. Like, what an amazing job the right has done of making everyone hate that term. And yet, that's literally one of the few words used in the Constitution to describe what the government has been set up to provide for. The general welfare. But it's the Constitution-loving conservatives who... Vomit a little bit in their mouths every time they hear someone suggesting that we should provide for people's welfare through the government. Just a thought on the power of propaganda there. Okay. Now, thanks again to everyone who's been signing up for memberships, giving gift memberships or donating to help keep the show going strong, and also to those who've been signing up with the ReferralMatic, the fun and exciting way to get rewarded for helping to share the show. Now, just a couple more people to thank who've been making their first referrals, Nicole W and Nick from California, regular caller. Huge thanks to both of you for getting on board the ReferralMatic. And don't forget that the reward for referring just five new listeners is something that you cannot get anywhere else for any price. Uh, we've designed custom artwork, best of the left artwork that we absolutely love. It's designed to be used as, as like a phone background or a tablet background. We definitely think that you're going to love it. So, uh, sign up for the referral and pass. Along the show to at least five people, and it's yours. Of course, the links to all of those the memberships, merch, referral matic are all in the show notes. And of course, we take one time donations as well. You can do that through the uh, support page. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, web work, bonus show co-host, game show contestant, everything. She does all the stuff that the other people don't do. And of course, thanks one last time to those purchasing memberships or gift memberships at bestofleftcom slash support, as that is absolutely how the program is surviving right now.